This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. The title drop video for my upcoming novel, Only the Dead, is out now. You can find it on my social channels, at Jack Carr USA, and also on my YouTube channel. My guest today is the legendary Nelson DeMille, the author of over 20 New York Times best-selling novels to include The Charm School, Plum Island, Nightfall, Wildfire, amazing. He dropped out of college in 1966 to join the United States Army, where he served as an infantry officer with the 1st Cavalry Division, spent a year in Vietnam, then came home and started writing. His latest novel is on shelves now. It is called The Maze. Now, without further ado, Nelson DeMille. Sir, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to do this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So we're here already. We are here. We are here. And uh, I like your office, I like your office better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Not a bad spot. It's uh, a little bit separated from the house. We have three kids, so I need a place to escape that uh, is physically separated, even though it's just by a few yards. Uh, as yeah. I sit down to write the to write the novels. Uh, which is something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, the Maze comes out tomorrow. And so by the time people hear this, it'll be out on shelves everywhere. Um, right. How did you do it all those years? Uh, uh, did you have a special room that no one would disturb you in? Did you go someplace else to write? <laughs> how did you do it during the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and today? How, does that, how did that look? Yeah, you know, and it was your writer too, so you need, you need a separate space. I have an area I call Area 51, and no one's allowed in there. I don't have a phone or have my cell phone, but there's nothing in there. It's just uh, just a table, and um, I write with uh, I write longhand. I, so I have number one pencils, electric pencil sharpener, and a coffee pot, and, and uh, legal pads, and I'm, I'm in good shape. And it's out of the house, though. I mean, um, I need to be out of the house. I need to be to you know get up in the morning, shower, everybody else get dressed, go to work. In another room in the same building, I have uh, my assistant. So, uh, but we're separated by uh, one one staircase and a couple of yards down the hall, and it works. It's been working for me, gosh, forty four years now. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I've noticed I had that too. I have to I have one computer that I just write on that doesn't do anything else. It's just for writing, uh, and then phone has to be in a separate room. I can't just turn it off and have it right. near me. I put that in a separate room as well, uh, which I find help is very helpful. But the number one pencil, where did that come from? Why not a number two pencil? I think number one is a little softer. Is that is that right? They get harder as they go up. Right, exactly. You know, number one is the softest, and it. You know, if you're writing five thousand words a day longhand, it starts to drag after a couple of hours. When you have a number two or a number three, you can barely read. And you know, by trial and error over the years, I you know, I figured it's number one pencil, and it's also the legal pads, and not the pulpy, crappy kind you get in when you're in high school or college. Uh, these are the sheen ones. You got a nice hard sheen on it, and I have my coffee cup next to me. And you know, everything's got to be just where it is. Everybody says, you know, can you write on the road? No, I, I barely can write in my own office. But everything <laughs> there is, you know, structured for me to to be productive for the day. Wow, that is amazing. But longhand, five thousand words a day. 
some days, no, not every day. And as you know, I mean, we get good days, we get bad days. And sometimes when I'm on a roll, I will write until dawn. I've seen the sun come up a couple of times. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you've got the same experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you want to roll, you want to roll. If you're getting writer's block, there's no such thing as far as I'm concerned. No. You sit there until, you know, writer's block is if you choose to get up and go play golf. No. Uh, <laughs> you, you sit there because this is your job, and you and eventually it'll come. And if you're having a, a difficult, uh, you know, morning, have another cup of coffee. Well, go read the stuff you've already written, and that kind of impels you into the, you know, into the next chapter. So exactly, uh, I, tend to, I tend to write, you know, seven to ten hours a day, and but there've been days that I've written say till dawn. Yep, uh, I, I find those days are getting harder and harder to do as I get older. Uh, right. For my first couple books, I had a couple all nighters, no problem. The last one, I had an all nighter, and it floored me the next day. It was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot more difficult to deal with than in years past. Um, on writer's block, I heard I took some advice from Stephen Pressfield as I was starting down this path, and I heard him say something like, "You've never heard of a dentist getting dentist block or a truck driver getting truck driver block. You're a professional. You sit down. You write. That's what you do." And uh, that was very, very liberating. <laughs> you can't, if you can't do it, getting writer's block, you should look for something else to do. Exactly. And, uh, and you know, Bill, you probably know that. Uh, the the, uh, the the writing that's done late at night, sometimes it is good, but most of the times when you read it the next day, it's not as good as you thought it was at three <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> I mean, you thought you were being brilliant because you were flying high on coffee, and then <laughs> you read it and you say, well, at least you got something down, right? Exactly. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, something to edit. Uh, but I would ask you about the start of your your path into into writing and um, uh, your path into the U.S. military. You did three years in of college and then went into the military, really at the the the, the high point of the, the Vietnam War. I think you went in in 1966. Um, what compelled you to leave college? Because I think you could have stayed another another year. You didn't have to join the military, I, I don't think. But in 1966, with three years of college under your belt, you picked up and joined the military, became an officer, and, and went to Vietnam. Yeah, I had another you know, year on my uh, student exemption, whatever they called it then. Um, I was bored. I was bored. And uh, I didn't go back for the uh, winter semester, which was January of 66. And uh, by April, I just went down to the draft board and just to chat. <laughs> to see, uh, to see if they wanted me, and uh, they they did want me, and I, you know, when you when you enlisted in those days, as opposed to being drafted, you could pick certain things, and you know, I wanted officer candidate school, I wanted you know language school, I wanted certain things. They, they gave you a, a, a contract, you know, an army contract is worth nothing, by the way. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> so I, I, I did sign a contract, and. Uh, and I did get the officer candidate school, and then I went to jungle training school, and then I went to Vietnam for a year. Came back, had about six months to go, and um, finished out in uh, April of 69. And, um, you know, a lot of men will come back from war, you think, and especially educated men, I guess, like, like a Norman male. You want to write about what you've experienced, and that, that's kind of what got me into the writing process. No kidding. And, and when you were, were downrange in Vietnam, where, where was the jungle training, by the way? Where did you go to do jungle training before you deployed? <laughs> Fort Gulick Canal Zone. Oh, okay. uh, it was a almost a four-week course. And it was mostly, you know, escape and evasion, jungle training. Uh, you know, when I, when I sent me to jungle training school, I figured 
Typical army, they're probably going to send me to Alaska. Exactly. Next. <laughs> <laughs> but know. no, they actually remember that I had jungle training. I'm like, I'm like, what is the Southeast Asia? They never said Vietnam. And I always said on your order, Southeast Asia area of operations. Okay. Okay. Which meant Vietnam, but they didn't want to use the V word. Oh, interesting. Did uh, did they send you to language school? Did you get that? Or did they uh, forget that part did of the not contract? Lang, they forgot about that. And uh, <laughs> so I, uh, but that would have been a good one. And I, and I could have gotten that if I'd stayed in, mm-hmm. but I had my three years in and I did want to get back to, uh, to college. And I went back, I finished up and the war was still going on. And I, you know, I actually had a thought about now going back in again, but uh, that didn't happen. I had to do with a woman as it always does. And, uh, right? so, uh, and I started writing, he said, this was 69. I started actually writing in 73. And uh, I was writing a Vietnam War novel, uh, you know, the great American War novel that nobody wanted to publish, but it did get me into the process. So, uh, and, you know, and eventually I did write about Vietnam with uh, Word of Honor and Upcountry. I had two Vietnam books out of my 23. Because I didn't want to be the Vietnam writer. I didn't want to be Phil Caputo or Tim O'Brien. I just wanted to, I wanted to get it out of my system. And if there was more... You know, more need for it, or more, you know, more publishers or editors wanted it, I would have done another. But I think I said what I had to say in those two books. Did the did you ever, uh, uh, what happened to that great American war novel that you were working on in the, the early years? Did, uh, did Is it in a drawer somewhere, or do you visit parts of it, or what, what happened to that? Yeah, that's a good question. I did visit parts of it, but that's what you do. I kind of mind that, because mm. it was written kind of fresh. And later, when I wrote Word of Honor, I used some of that. And then when I wrote Up Country, uh, I wrote I, I used a little bit of it there. So, uh, but could I do another one? You know, I went back in '97 with two other guys who had served, and one was a combat medic, and one was a, a marine. Um, and we went back in '97, uh, so it was 30 years after we had pretty much 30 years after we'd all left. Uh, one of them was a childhood friend, and so I, I knew him when he was in Vietnam. The other one was a recent friend, but we said, we really need to get back to this place. He said, I want to, you know, that's what I wrote Word of Honor. Uh, not Word of Honor, I'm sorry, I wrote uh, Up Country. Uh, and it was, it was a good experience. It was uh, more positive than negative. There were some bad memories, but it was also cathartic, and it was good to see the country at peace and to see the people. And, you know, and um, so and, uh, and from that uh, one month visit uh, came uh, Up Country. Which I one of my one of my better books, as far as I'm concerned. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So I went back to uh, Pearl Harbor this last year for the commemoration events. My daughter was 16 then, and we helped escort 63 uh, World War II veterans back for those yeah. events for about a week. Uh, then we went to Normandy, did the same thing. We took 23 uh, veterans, went back for the D-Day commemoration events, which was incredible. Yeah. Uh, with a an organization called the Best Defense Foundation, and uh, now they're going to start taking Vietnam veterans back to back to Vietnam. So I'll be volunteering on yeah. on some of those in the in the years ahead. Um, right. I've seen you post a couple of times, a couple of pictures of you back uh, back in Vietnam um, on your Instagram. So I've seen uh, seen a couple of those uh, of those photos. Um, but after you got after you got back and up, up until you went went back in 97, um, what were some of your I guess, did you revisit the memories of the of that time frequently or not? Was it just a, a foundation upon which to build or what were your what were your thoughts over those years between 1969 and 1997? You know, good question. I mean, you know, I started, I was thinking about it less and less, but, mm-hmm. uh, 
as my children got older, they wanted to go back to me. They want to go to Vietnam with me. You know, I still had a lot of friends, veterans, and we, you know, talk about it. And uh, but you know, I I didn't have anything near post traumatic stress, and I know some people did, and I, you know, I I, I honor that. But uh, the thing was, you just you know, you came back like every other, like millions of men in World War II, like my father who served in the Navy, came came back, got a job. Got married, raised a family, and that was the end of it. And, mm-hmm. and that, I think I was influenced by that generation because I saw all my uncles, my mother's brothers, and my father and his family. They all went to, and almost all of them went because it was a, a real universal draft. Yeah. My father was actually Canadian; he was here, but he got scooped up into the American Navy, and uh, uh, he got on with his life. And he, when these guys got around, he sat around a table playing cards. I remember as a kid. You know, drinking cheap, bad rye whiskey and smoking cigarettes. The war never came up. And some of them had some amazing experiences, I'm sure, but it never came up. And I think that's that's what the citizens, soldiers should do. You go, you serve your country, you come back. Um, I think for us, the coming home was not good. Mm-hmm. It was uh, very, un, you know, very unpleasant. So I was hassled at the airport coming into San Francisco mm-hmm. from Vietnam. After you know serving for a year in a combat zone, now I'm getting hassled by civilians. You know I need this, um, and I had a war trophy, a legitimate war trophy, a Russian rifle. Oh wow! And, you know, they had to have papers to it, but they, you know, I was stopped about six times because I had this rifle. I guess I don't blame them for stopping me <laughs> in the airport with a rifle, but I had the papers, and one guy wanted to take it away, and I said, you know, over my dead body, you're getting this. And I, I, I learned this the hard way. So it was unpleasant, and uh, my you know, I had I had a girlfriend prior to that, and, and she gave a call. Yeah, but it was it was um, uh, not so much emotional. It was uh, stressful. Mm-hmm. It was a stressful coming home. It was you know, no yeah. parades, and right. and I had a thirty day leave, and I tried to you know connect with some of my college buddies, but mm. you know, they either weren't around or weren't interested in high school friends. So. Yeah. It was strange, and, and and you know that that's been written about too, and I kind of wanted to write about that, but uh, I said let me leave that one alone. That's that was almost a worse memory than what happened in Vietnam. Mm. Did do you still have that rifle? Oh, yeah, I do. Fucking <laughs> amazing! Yeah, it's an SK forty four bolt action. Wow, yeah, not an automatic rifle because they. No, they, they don't like you to bring automatic no, rifles. No, you don't want to mess with those. Uh, I don't know if you can see it on the what camera angle you have, but I have a uh, an Enfield eighteen sixty four that's above the okay. screen right here that I brought back from yeah. Afghanistan. Um, you could bring back with paperwork anything. I think it was eighteen ninety nine or maybe nineteen hundred, but uh, anything before that you could bring back with just a, a simple signature. Um, anything else got a little more complicated or was just a, a no go. But uh, got that uh, Lee Enfield. It's a percussion, or not a Lee Enfield, just an Enfield. Uh, it's a percussion rifle up there, and uh, I was there early enough before they started making the uh, the, the the fakes. So it makes these fake ones in Pakistan to sell to the Americans to try to pass off as legitimate eighteen sixties and fields but uh i was in early enough where i got that that one right there um do you remember your first day in vietnam when you landed did you land at an airfield and step off and what was that like to land there from for the first time no it was october um and uh i got out of an air-conditioned plane we were flown over i, I happened to take a brown off i mean it was, a, it was a chartered flight we were all full of soldiers okay and i remember you know stepping off the plane it was uh, about maybe six in the morning Sun was just coming up, but I remember stepping out into this 
85 degree heat at Tonsonat Airport in Vietnam, and I'd just been 66 degrees in the plane or whatever. And I said, this is this is going to be a long year. This is going to be a long year. Uh, and then from there, we went to Long Bend. We got processed. And uh, uh, then I got my orders to go uh, up country. I got my orders for the 1st Cavalry Division. And uh, somebody flew me up there in a helicopter, and I was a platoon leader. So I, I was going to take over a platoon. I didn't, you know. Um, I was, yeah, I was more anxious about that, about being, you know, a platoon leader and having these men entrusted to, you know, to me than I really was about the combat per se. Um, and uh, when my when I got out to the field, I got to the forward position. Um, my company was out in the field, and they were actually uh, they were actually engaged. So they were, they were being shot at, and I could hear it on the radio. And I said, "Oh boy, this is." This is going to be a long year or so. Uh, but, you know, like anything else, give it 30 days and you're okay. Wow. Uh, Did you have some senior enlisted uh, guys who'd been there for a while yeah, to help? Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. my gosh. That's you got to make friends with the sergeants right away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can make or break you, you know. Oh, they see a young lieutenant coming in and it's like fresh meat to them. <laughs> they're they're going to test you right away and see what you're made out of. Oh, but okay. you know, uh, but by the you know, by my tenth or eleventh month, uh, I was the seasoned guy. I was the guy people came to, so yeah. that felt good too. Wow. What, what would you remember? What your uh, official mission was up there? Did they have a? Was it clear cut or what was it? What was it like? Oh, uh, you know, it, it was just search and destroy almost every day. I mean, it was just you know, we were out and I started off, uh, you know, a place called Bongson, but then we went up country to. Um, the uh, I Corps, which is by the uh, DMZ by North Vietnam, where Quezon was in the way, and uh, that's where a lot of the action was. They moved the cavalry up there, partly to uh, help break the siege at Quezon. Marines were in the siege, and uh, you know it was a search and destroy. It was that kind of war, it was a guerrilla war, and you know, they looked for us, we looked for them, and sometimes we found each other, and uh, and that's what it was. There were a lot of booby traps and a lot of. Uh, you know, uncomfortable situations with sometimes the villages, sometimes the villages would be friendly, sometimes they weren't. Um, and disease is always disease in these third world countries, as you know. Anything from, you know, uh, trench, you know, trench foot to um, mosquitoes and malaria and, you know, you name it. And uh, uh, leprosy, there was a lot of leprosy in Vietnam for some wow. reason. And, at Quezon, the uh, bubonic plague had actually broken out amongst the North Vietnamese because of all the dead bodies and the dead water buffalo and the trench rats. And so, you know, we're not to tell war stories, but when COVID came around, I'm saying, like, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, I've been through, I've been through the bubonic plague and, and leprosy and everything else. Not that I wasn't, you know, uh, I wasn't concerned. Of course, I was concerned, but I put it in front of I didn't get sick over there. I spent 12 months wanting to get. <laughs> I remember a little bit of cold to get back to the rear for a couple of days, but I was, you know, a healthy young man, and I didn't, I didn't get so much as a sniffle for 12 months in the worst of sanitary conditions with uh, the leeches and the uh, swamps and the rice paddies full of, you know, feces. Uh, and you're covered with this stuff all the time. But by that time, I think you built up your immune system. Wow. Jeez. During that year, did you ever think of things um, strategically? Did you ever question what are we doing here, or this is not working, or were you just focused on the tactical level, taking your guys right. out, conducting the mission, getting everybody back as safe as you can? Um, or, or did you think of both? Did you think of the strategic stuff privately, or how did that affect what you did on the ground? 
Yeah, a really good question. Nobody's ever asked me before, actually. And I, yeah, I didn't want to privately. I had private thoughts about this, you know. And I would sometimes talk to other officers about, you know, what are we doing here? But it was a private conversation. Um, mostly I was just, you know, day to day, really concerned about the guys, concerned about, you know, engagements. Um, but coming home, you know, uh, we, we didn't get a lot of news there. So uh, even when the Tet Offensive happened and I was there during the Tet Offensive, we didn't think it was as big a deal as it turned out to be. I mean, we knew something big was happening. But it's amazing that when you cut off from news sources and all you get is the Army rumor mill, uh-huh. uh, we knew that this was a, something serious was happening. It took about a week or so. I mean, people back in the States, I think, knew in day one, day two, that this was a massive countrywide offensive. I was up in I-Corps near uh, City of Way, and all I knew is that the North Vietnamese had taken the city away. And so, you know, we've, we, had, we, had, we had underground concerns and the bigger picture. It wasn't really clear to me until I got back from Vietnam and was able to read about it. So that was interesting to be really in the middle of an historical event like the Tet Offensive and not know you're in the middle of an historical event. Wow, amazing. And then when you got got back, what lessons do you think, whether whether they were immediate or years down the line that you look back on as lessons that you took mm-hmm. and then applied either to your life personally or professionally from that, uh, from that time in, in country? Well, I mean, personally, it's, uh, and I think everybody in Vietnam, anybody's been any war, you know, whether it be Afghanistan, Iraq, the, the first lesson is don't sweat the small stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the stuff that was a big deal to you. Um, and I was three years of college, and I, many times I said to myself, I don't think I made a good move here, but, uh, you know, but I, but I was so anxious to get back to school. And, uh, uh, but I was happy to serve. I was happy to serve. But I put things in perspective. Um, the things that bothered me, no matter how small and petty they were, you know, pre-Vietnam didn't bother me anymore. Uh, I came back and I was, uh, you know, we talked about post-traumatic stress uh, briefly. I was a happy guy. I had survived the war. I'd been shot at for, you know, a year. And I felt good about me and I felt good about what I did. And I felt good that I, you know, served these guys and, and I was a good officer, and um, I'm still in touch with many of them. And just had a reunion about oh, about seven or eight years ago in Fort Myers, Florida. And uh, they presented me with a cavalry sword that they had made up for me with my name on it and that type of thing. And that was moving because, you know, we think you did the best job you could, but you're not sure. Yeah. But when these guys you know, came there for me at this restaurant and, uh, and presented me with the sword, it was really uh, an emotional moment for me. I bet. I bet that's how you know you did a good job if those uh, yeah. if those junior enlisted guys have uh, have respect for you, stay in touch with you. Um, right. That's uh, that that's really telling. And I th- it sounds like we had fairly similar experiences as much as you can have between all those years. Um, uh, in that I I don't I sleep very well at night. That uh, I did, yeah. did the best I could downrange. I feel good about what I did downrange. Things went our way for whatever reason, whether it was luck or skill or a combination. Right. Um, I feel very good about that. And then uh, and I apply certain parts of that to uh, to my writing. Um, and then you got home and it took a couple of years, but then you started writing uh, b- uh, before the Rivers of Babylon hit. There were a couple of series that you did first. Yeah. Um, do you look at those as kind of like your training ground or um, what were those, what was that, those years, those years like before uh, the Rivers of Babylon hit in 1978? 
you know, well, you know, back in those days, a lot of writers did paperback originals. There was a lot of paperback original pulpers, we call them. They I think they cost about a dollar twenty-five to buy, and uh, that was my training. That was my on-the-job training, and uh, I couldn't get to get published in hardcover was a dream. Um, I did a few police series because it was a time in the seventies when it was a lot of crime, because we have it again. But at that time, it was, you know, uh, cities were not safe, and you had um, uh, vigilante heroes in literature and in movies, and you had Batman and Robin and. Serpico, that type of thing. So the uh, publisher said, why don't you forget Vietnam for a minute here? Uh, why don't we try some of these police procedurals? And I remember he gave me a whole bunch of paperback pulpers and he said, read these. And because uh, he had read my Vietnam stuff, he says, it's good, but I can't publish it. But I know you know how to write. So transfer that you know, to the uh, mean streets of New York City, uh, which I did. My first book was called The Sniper. I know, I love that title. <laughs> Yeah. I don't recommend any of these books. By the way. <laughs> I know, I know this. They're not on your website, but I love the the covers of those types of books from back in the sixties and seventies. Right. The pulp covers, <laughs> I collect them. I love those covers. Uh, there's just something uh, something about that artwork uh, that was it was so different. You can pick one out exact time period uh, when they were created, and I right. just uh, yeah. I love those uh, right there. Um, so how did the, the Rivers of Babylon then come about after you're writing the, the, the Joe Riker series and you're writing these other books and some short fiction in there, uh, and then the river by the Rivers of Babylon, um, comes out and now you're on your, now you have your hard cover. Right. And, um, it, and I, I, some of my writing had come to the attention of, um, other people, well, a man named Bernie Geis, who was kind of a legend. He had published Valley of the Dolls and... William Peter Blatty before the Exorcist. He also uh, published President Truman, a biography, autobiography, and uh, he was a well-respected man. And he uh, kind of came to me and said, "I have this great idea for a book, uh, and I think you're the guy to do it because you have the military background. Because it was an Arab-Israeli thriller, and it had a lot of gunplay in it. And I don't think there were that many writers around who knew one end of a rifle from another, <laughs> and probably not today either. Uh, but he he liked the writing, and he liked the fact that I had this kind of background. Uh, he said, you could do By the Rivers of Babylon. It was actually his idea. And uh, so I said, okay, you know, I like to write my own books. And, but then he named the number, and I said, yes, I'll write that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got started. And it was a hardcover, and it was a book of the month club main selection. And I read his digest condensed, and we sold a lot of foreign uh, language rights. And uh, so, I, you know, I went from, I think they were paying me, Jack, about, um, I think it was like $1,800 a book. And I went from that to six figures in, hey. in 1978, which was a lot of money then. That's a lot of money now. Yeah, actually. it sure is. It totally changed my life. And, oh, my uh, gosh. You know, and that was 23 books ago. Wow. Incredible, incredible. Do you uh, do you remember if uh, if he talked about it or if you did research into uh, the 1970 Dawson Field hijackings when those uh, I forget exactly how many planes right now, but three of them went to this place Dawson Field in Jordan and one of them blew up and very spectacular type of a, a terrorist event. Everyone was was got off before it it exploded. Um, but did that influence any part of by the rivers of Babylon? Yeah, and I don't. When was that? Do you know the that year was 1970? That? So wow. Like, no, I mean, I barely remember it, but I think, um, I, I'm not sure when the Entebbe raid was. That was also, but what was in the news then was the beginnings of the Arab-Israeli conflict. I mean, it had been, on, been going on for 2,000 years, we know that, but 
was starting to make the news and um, uh, Black Sunday by uh, Thomas Harris right. had come out before yep. Babylon. It was like one of the first, if not the first, okay. big uh, Arab-Israeli terrorist kind of book. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, Islamic terrorism was in the news, but it was also getting into literature. So I think, you know, the Scott Bernie guys kind of, you know, he had, a, he had his finger on the pulse. I didn't really, I wasn't that interested in the subject, but actually when I saw <laughs> research, you know, I became interested. When they gave you that number. Yeah, you became very interested. <laughs> That's fantastic. And then, then you do uh, 1979 May Day, which becomes a movie in 2005. Uh, right. Cathedral, Talbot Odyssey, um, and uh, and then uh, Word of Armor, uh, Word of Honor, uh, which later became 2003 uh, film with Don oh. Johnson and uh, Gene Triplehorn, who was just in uh, my book, The Terminal List. She plays uh, a character in the The Terminal List, which came out on oh. Amazon Prime this year, uh, and Charm School, which is where I discovered you. And then I went back and I read everything else. I, I'm, I, I this is my original copy right here of the okay. charm school you can tell it's uh it's been with me for quite some time i would share all these different books uh yours in particular with my grandmother she wrote my name in here and it's, so it's in her her handwriting right inside so this is something i i treasure to to this day um and it was one of those books that cemented me on my path into into writing um this book is such such a powerful book especially for me at that time i read it in 1989 so probably a year after it it uh it came out but amazing. And of course, at the time, I wish it would. They, I thought this is a perfect movie. Why aren't they making this a movie? It's uh, absolutely fantastic. And then I went back and I think I read next uh, the Talbot Odyssey and I still have my original. We moved recently, so I have boxes everywhere, um, but I still have my my original uh, of that as well. Um, fantastic. Read everything that you've uh, written ever since. So okay. I, am a, uh, I am a huge fan, um, but it did. It cemented me on my path because I knew I wanted to be a SEAL and I knew I wanted to write afterward. And uh, then books like this that had protagonists with backgrounds similar to ones that I wanted to have in real life in the military or intelligence circles, that sort of a thing. So it was uh, extremely impactful. Um, and uh, when you wrote Charm School, did you did you know were, were there any turning tipping points along the way or or, or, or points that um, uh, kind of uh, accelerated you on to the next stage of your your uh, in the profession of writing or any that stand out? to you during the, uh, other than your first one, obviously, but maybe during the eighties, um, or were you just nose to the grindstone turning these, these out and, uh, and doing the best you could and improving along the way? What, what, when you look back at the eighties, what do you think about? Yeah, well, it's a good question too, but I, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, when I, when I trained in, uh, in, uh, Panama, I, um, it was general army general training school, but we did train with a lot of seals. I just wanted to say, uh, you guys, even way back in the dark ages when nobody knew what SEALs were, back in 67 this was, uh, uh, the Army guys were impressed. The, the, uh, the SEALs had come to us already kind of trained, and we're, we're training jungle school for the first time, but uh, the SEALs were, they kind of stayed together and talked to the Army guys, but uh, they were an amazing bunch. And I said, you know, uh, I hope they, I, I remember the old frogmen from World War II. Yeah. Might have been the predecessor of the SEALs, yeah. I don't know. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but I, uh, I thought, you know, maybe I should be a Navy SEAL instead of being an <laughs> yeah. army infantry officer. But to answer the question, you know, every book, I, I did mostly standalones before I did this Corey series. Yep. Um, and uh, different subjects. Uh, then, you know, when the Cold War came, came, the Cold War was always there. And I was, I was a fanatic Cold War uh, 
reader. I read everything about the country. I was starting with Le Carre, a uh, spy who came up from Nicole 63, and I'm all through college, and I read like everybody in college, I read all the James Bond movies, some of them were Cold War. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of happy being a Cold you know, I didn't want to be the Vietnam writer, but I didn't mind being the Cold War writer. And then um, uh, Trump School, uh, which you mentioned, uh, was uh, I went to Moscow in 87. Mm. I think the book came out in 88. And uh, 89, the wall came down, the Cold War was over, and I was out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> Got to adapt. And, right. And you really, and I wasn't the only one. There's a lot of people who were making a living doing either straight Cold War or something to do with the Cold War. And um, all of a sudden, we had to switch gears. It's like World War II being over. Like, well, but the funny thing is, in World War II books, went on and on and on to this day, 70, 75 years later, and, and movies. But when the Cold War ended, if you noticed, uh, that was about the end of the Cold War books. And uh, you don't see them anyway. You don't even see the retrospective of, yeah. you know, how it was then as a nostalgia trip to the uh, 70s or 80s. Uh, then I had to kind of scramble around for, for something. And uh, I think the next book after that might have been... Um, Gold Coast. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> once, once you have so many, I can I understand. I only have five right now. I'm working on six, and I still have to. Uh, kind of, wait, which one was that? Uh, what yeah, color right, eyes do they know. have? When did that one come out? So I have to think about it for a second. Um, but uh, yeah, Charm School. I mean, absolutely incredible. What was the? Uh, where did the idea? All the ideas come from when you sat down to do this book? Did, was it one of those ones that uh, did you did you outline or did you come up with an initial idea? Cold War, some spot, yeah. but this really changed. This was really one of those ones. It wasn't just a Cold War novel. I mean, this had has has things in it that have never been written about before. Um, right. It was ingenious, and it was also something that people realized could actually happen. And probably, I gave a nod to this in my last novel. Uh, it's subtle, but it's in there. And uh, in my yeah. first novel, I give a nom, nod to uh, Plum Island in in that one. So there's just a sentence, you know. But I always like to tip my hat to uh, to those who inspired me along the way. So they're in there for fans of yours that might read mine. It, it, they'll they'll notice. Um, but uh, uh, how did how did this how did Tarm School come about? Uh, you know, it's uh, if anybody's seen the Americans on TV, the series, it's about Russians who come to America but are trained to be Americans and to infiltrate society. Um, and, um, okay, so in, uh, I think it was April or May of 1968, uh, when I was in Vietnam, I was going through, I was on a mission someplace, I mean, an administrative mission. I stopped at Weifu Bai Air Base. Uh, and there was an officer's club there that was air-conditioned and had cold beer. I mean, hey. uh, so you got to stop there. And I, I was sat at the bar. Remember, it was the first air-conditioning I'd probably experienced in five or six months and a cold beer. And there was a lot of uh, Air Force guys. There was an Air Force o, o club. Um, and they, um, some of them were fighter pilots. And they were, you know, they were, they were, they were, they were fascinated by what I did. They were saying, oh, my God, you're out in the jungle. People are shooting at you. And I said, hey, it's nothing compared to what you guys do. I mean, dodging, you know, missiles. And I mean, I can't even imagine flying out a four phantom over enemy territory. I'd rather have my feet on the ground. But anyway, long story short, um, they were talking about guys who got shot down, was seen bailing out, and they were seen by, you know, Americans and uh, rescue missions had gone, but they disappeared. They didn't appear on any POW lists. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so and somebody there said, well, you know, they're going to Russia, they're being kidnapped, that the North Vietnamese are getting these Russian surface-to-air missiles from the Russians, and in exchange, they're giving the Russians the product of those missiles, which is these American fighter pilots. Mm-hmm. And why do the Russians want them? They want to learn American tactics and how American fighter pilots are trained, and why American fighter pilots are better than their pilots in, in many ways. That was the theory. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I always remembered that. I said, you know, all these guys. And then after the war, um, there was still all these MIAs, there were like 2,000 MIAs, and a lot of them had been seen alive, but disappeared and never appeared on POW list. And they weren't released when the prisoners were all released after the war, American prisoners. So I took it a step further in saying that after they were debriefed as fighter pilots, the Russians decided to start the school called the Charm School mm-hmm. to train the KGB agents to speak like Americans, act like Americans, think like Americans, and go to America and infiltrate American society. And then I think the uh, people who made the uh, series, the Americans, totally ripped off my idea. <laughs> there are a lot uh, of similarities, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> I noticed uh, that as well. <laughs> and the book did incredibly well. I mean, really incredibly well. I was, you know, the height of it was kind of cold, was sort of winding down. I wouldn't say height of, but it, was, uh, but it did very well. And then by the time the paperback came out, I think the wall was about to come down at about the same time. Uh, but the book still sells well. People oh, read it now oh. as a retrospective. And, um, and you know, it's one of the, I think, one of my one of my better books. And it's actually used in some college courses as a adjunct to some cold, we have to call what nonfiction. So that's good. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I was back then, You, did, of course, there's no internet, so I can't find out when your next novel's coming out. The best I can do is go and ask at the local bookstore. Um, and, you know, they wouldn't really know either, which is kind of, uh, you know, unless you're kind of closer to a publication date. Um, because it was before the years, you didn't have a recurring character, so there wasn't one of those things where you're going to get every year. It was uh, maybe it was every year, maybe it was every two years, maybe it was every two and a half yeah. in there. But I was always waiting for the for the next one. Uh, and then the General's Daughter, of course, 1992 becomes a 1999 film with John Travolta. Um, I mean, what a great, um, ugh, what an amazing novel that is. And then Spencerville, another one of my favorites. After that, then Plum Island that introduces us to the character that is the protagonist of the maze, which will be out when people, people hear this. Um, and for John Corey, uh, how did, what, what made you want to write him? And then did you know he was going to be a recurring character, uh, from that first outing in Plum Island? No, because I didn't only written standalones before then. And, um, I just wanted to, it was the beginning of the political, politically correct movement, if you could call it a movement. And I wanted to, write a character who said uh, things that were not politically correct. And it was kind of funny back then. Um, and, you know, he's meant to be, you know, one shot character and he's a little bit of a misogynist, but the women still love him anyway. And, you know, he's, um, he makes jokes that, you know, maybe today would not be as, uh, you know, as accepted. Um, and, you know, we kind of, and, and the book did well. It was like, uh, and you would appreciate this. It was like 17 weeks on the New York Times list. Oh my gosh. It was a long, long, that was the Amazing. longest I've had a book on the list. Wow. And, but I moved on to another book. Um, you probably know better than me because you have a list. <laughs> I sure do right here. Uh, Plum Islands to, to Lion Game, then to Upcountry. Oh. Uh, right. And then, well, I didn't really want to write it, but my editor and my agent said, can you, can you write a sequel to the John Corey book, to Plum Island? 
you know, and I, I was, I kind of resisted it, but I saw the fan mail coming in. Yeah. The fan mail was incredible. And, you know, eventually somewhere along the line, I noticed the royalty statement that looked good too. <laughs> and, but I also knew it was on the list for 16 weeks, yeah. but I didn't really want to write a series and they're difficult there. People think they're easy because you've already created the character, but this character has now got a background that you have to kind of introduce into uh, the second book and the third. And it can only carry so much forward before it just becomes, you know, a regurgitation of, of the past. And, and the character has to be consistent. The internal chronology of the Corey books is over 20 years, but the, or whether the external chronology, the real chronology, the internal chronology is like maybe a four-year period. Mm. So the character can't really age much. And I'm aging, and I'm getting a little, <laughs> maybe a little different in my speech patterns. So but you want to make that character the same. So those are the challenges of a ongoing series. And, uh, you know, this is number eight, and, and, and maybe maybe the last. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't want to go, you know, um, a bridge too far on this because it's – I think this is going to be a good book, and I think it's good to end it on a high note. But uh, we'll see. I can, I can be, I can be convinced that I need another John Corey. Yeah, you can be convinced when those royalty statements arrive, uh, and I'll pick up mine tomorrow when it hits when it hits shelves. So I can't wait to to read it. Um, and if for anyone listening. One week on the New York Times bestseller list is incredible. Two weeks, three weeks is amazing, and you get sixteen weeks on. I mean. That is just next level. And you do Nightfall then in 2004. And I read this, I read Nightfall on a plane. So I recommend people read this, but not on a plane. Um, I distinctly remember talking about acts of God and the insurance side of, of airline safety and all that uh, in here. But this was genius, especially the way you end it. Uh, I took notes on this and people uh, who have read my stuff will uh, now know that, uh, that there was some some inspiration uh, to, to my novels, um, to the, my Fourth novel, The Devil's Hand, from Nightfall, right here. Um, but uh, I read this actually uh, at language school. They did send me to language school in the military. Really? They sent me for French. Uh, they thought I was going to go to North Africa, West Africa to do some things, and I and I did. But they gave me an interpreter the whole time. So now my my yeah. French is mixed with my Spanish, and now it's all uh, yeah. That's just how it how it goes. But, uh, but that's where I read this. So I have a distinct memory of reading this uh, and what. A, Fantastic, amazing, of course. John Corey in this one as, as well. Same thing with Wildfire. Uh, then you have The Gatehouse, where you revisit some characters from the Gold Coast. Right, yeah. Um, the Gold Coast was another one of those books that were um, kind of a surprise hit. Because um, it was really more literary than it was action-adventure. And I got some editorial pushback. They didn't know if they wanted this book. And, the Gold Coast, the best way to describe it is the great Gatsby meets the Godfather yep. on the Gold Coast of Long Island, the and the old area of mansions and estates, and uh, a mafia family moves in next to an old waspy blue blood family. So right away it's you've got a setup that's kinda of, kind of fun. Um, but they said this is not you, you you write more muscular books and this is like a book of manners and mores and I said, yeah, but I live here. I live in this area. I know these people. Let me do this. <laughs> I became a huge bestseller. And uh, the um, uh, everybody, so many people wanted a, a sequel, but I wanted to leave it alone. I had never done a sequel. I mean, the series is different, as you know, from a sequel. A sequel is really picking up the same story and moving it forward. Um, but I got finally talked into it after 20 years. So I did a <laughs> sequel, to uh, which was The Gatehouse. And it, it was good. I mean, I'm not saying don't buy my book, but 
but but do buy the Gold Coast, and if you're really in, into the characters, then uh, the Gatehouse is, is a good is, is a good sequel. But sequels are always tricky, whether they be movies or books. I mean, the only sequel I can remember that was actually as good as, if not better than. Uh, was the movie Godfather Two? I, 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 <laughs> I was guessing you were going to say that. Yeah, right. There's not much. There's not much else. You're going to name it. You're going to count them on one hand. Right. How many sequels were as good as or better than the original? So it was always tricky. It's always got a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, traps there that that all all writers fall into. Um, but that taught me my lesson. No more sequels. <laughs> no more sequels. Uh, except for, well, we have The Lion, Panther, The Quest, Radiant Angel, Cuban Affair, and then you do The Deserter with your son. What was, uh, how was that? Because I knew you had an experience with Mayday that you weren't, uh, had vowed never to do another uh, book like that. And then uh, you do one with your son. Yeah, Mayday was, uh, you know, an airline disaster novel. I did this with a childhood friend, Tom Block, who's my co-author on Mayday. And, he was a U.S. Air captain and um, and a magazine writer, and uh, we decided we needed to do this book together. Mayday, uh, it was a great idea, a great plot, and um, I didn't have all the technical. I didn't really want to research it, but he was a writer. And so, long story short, uh, we you know we did it together. We, but these are two clashing egos, huge egos clashing. Airline pilot, ex infantry officer, you know, the <laughs> yeah. best selling author, and you know, and he was a but a well-known magazine writer. Um, and, you know, we had been friends since I think we were four years old. But wow. I, don't, I don't think we spoke for about a year after <laughs> the book was finished. And yet for all of that, uh, all that dissension with, you know, in the writing process, uh, it became a, a very, very successful book. And it was made into a uh, CBS TV movie of the week. So it was successful critically and, you know, commercially. Uh, but I never wanted to do it again. I, you know, I used to have a little sign from the French resistance on my desk that said collaborators will be shot. And, uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. I never wanted to, never again, never again. But then Simon and Schuster, my publisher, when he wanted to sign me to a three book deal, said, can you do three co-authored books? And I said, no. And then they named a number. And this is the problem when they <laughs> named a number. And I said, okay, well, I said, I'll try it. I want to be totally obligated to it. But, um, and I did sort of a contest. My agents and my publisher found seven or eight authors who were writing blind, you know, on the same subject and what the book was going to be about. And uh, we picked one blind and, yeah, and it was a good writer. Uh, we just, again, the same thing. We couldn't get along and he had a different vision. And so I said, well, I'm not going to do this. Uh, I'm not going to do any of these co-authored books. But, uh, but I started thinking about it and I realized my son was a uh, screenwriter. Mm -hmm. um, he got his MFA at UCLA and he uh, one of his uh, films was first place at Comic-Con, a short. Um, and I said, you know, he knows how to, he doesn't do novels, but he knows how to write. And uh, maybe if we can get him writing and making some money, he can pay me back the tuition from Yale. <laughs> or something. Uh, but I called him one night and I said, he, 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 I said, you know, Alex, you want to do this? And he it was a flat outright no. He said, no, I'm not working with you. I'm not writing novels. And then, I mean, this is true, though. I, I, I named the number. And then there was a pause on the phone. And he, he says, well, let's talk. <laughs> you know. So, uh, and it worked out. It worked out really well uh, because he wrote the first draft of, the, of, the, of every chapter. Mm. And I just kind of became the editor of the draft. Uh -huh. And I uh, gave it back to him. And he did some work, gave it back to me. So 
I didn't help him create either the characters or the storyline or the, um, the, the, the ambiance of the setting. Most of uh, the deserters set in Venezuela. He did all that research. He did really most of the work. And I, I just became like super editor. I did some, you know, a little rewriting where I needed it. But it, it, that process worked uh, for that book. And now we're on a second book um, called Bloodlines, which will be out next year. And it's the same two characters of Jack, uh, rather, <laughs> uh, Brody and uh, Taylor, the uh, male, female, and they are Army Criminal Investigation Division. Uh, detectives and they're investigating crimes all over the world that have to do with the army or on army uh, army bases or federal property that type of thing so there's a lot of a lot of room there to yeah. have these characters continue into the future and right wherever there's an american military installation oh, that's fantastic maybe alex can finally pay you back for for yale after this next one we'll see <laughs> we'll see um and uh and hollywood i, I remember reading it was a long time ago um, about uh, the John Corey series. And I think I read that S Sylvester Stallone was interested at, at one point. And I thought, and this was maybe 10 years ago, and I might be, I might be off um, by a few years there, but uh, I remember thinking, oh, that would be good. Maybe it was even in early 2000s, 2005, it's possible. I can't remember exactly, but I thought that might've been a good vehicle for, for him at that time, uh, 20, 20 years ago. Um, how, what, what has been the, the Hollywood interest in uh, the John Corey series? Uh, good question. The other one I was interested was uh, Bruce Willis. He actually called me in my office once, not myself, from my office. I don't know how he got the number, but uh, I didn't, first of all, I didn't think it was him. My, my secretary said, uh, Bruce Willis is on the phone for you. I said, right. <laughs> he said, whatever he's selling, I don't want. But, uh, <laughs> it really was Bruce Willis. And he says, friends, he says, people are telling me that I'm John Corey, whoever the hell John Corey is. Uh, but he was like a John Corey character. Yeah. Consciously, I didn't really base the Corey character. But that kind of snide, sarcastic, mm -hmm. and irreverent type of personality. And so he was interested, and Anne Stallone was interested, and a few other people. Um, uh, the property was owned by Columbia Motion Pictures, and it was owned by uh, the Bregman uh, production company, who did a lot of the Pacino mm -hmm. uh, films. And uh, then... It's been around. I mean, it's been around. Now, now it's with Sony TV. Mm. And, you know, we, we all see all these characters on you know, these, these series on TV and with these characters. And you know, I don't know if you're working on a deal, but uh, there's yep. a lot out there now. So. Oh, yeah. It's a good time, uh, I think, for, huh. for authors. I, I've, I've realized they've closed some of the loopholes um, for authors. Like, I think, uh, I think David Morell, he kept some of the merchandising rights for First Blood back in 1972 when someone said, yeah. oh, he said, why would I want merchandising rights for this thing? It's uh, look at this story, First Blood, which is different than the movie, obviously. Uh, and he said, OK, I guess we'll keep those fine. And then, of course, it turns into this big thing, which is very good that he did that. And now they've kind of closed some of these loopholes over the years for for authors that uh, at least early in the process if you're a new author they've closed a lot of these yeah. uh loopholes that are were very lucrative for uh, for authors in the past um but i find the process uh it, 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 i'm always learning and i love every part of this process to include working on some of the the on, on the scripts for my series on amazon i thought it was it was uh, i learned so much um but speaking of that also the cuban affair the cuban affair has some interest out there i think you actually read a script for it i did uh, uh it had left a lot to be desired yeah, you didn't like it <laughs> It was awful, actually. And, uh, um, you know, uh, Hollywood buys something, uh, you know, as you know, and they buy it for a reason, but then they forgot why they bought it. <laughs> and, uh, 
Oh, that's fantastic. Change everything except maybe the name of the. Mm. And, but I, what I do get in my contracts, Jack, is the name of the movie has to be the name of the book because there's been so many where the book has been, you know, I mean, hugely successful. Like, um, uh, I'm trying to think, like Red Dragon. Mm. Uh, that was Thomas Harrison made yeah. it into a movie called uh, The Manhunter. And then I realized I'd made a mistake, so they remade it, and they, they made a movie called Red Dragon. But but just easy to let them not not give them the option mm. of having their brainstorming sessions and deciding to change the name of Gold Coast or the Charm School or whatever mm-hmm. to something else. There is no identification with the book, and you're not right. going to sell a lot of books. So I get that in my contracts. Um, but hard to work with these people, and you're probably having better luck than I am. Maybe uh, I don't. Um, I don't really want to work with Hollywood anymore. I used to go out twice a year with my agent, but it was kind of fun in a way. You know, you go to breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And <laughs> but every time we got back on the plane coming home to New York, we say we need a bath. We need a bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, I understand. It's uh, it's very smart of you to have that in your contract. I don't. You can probably you can you well you can definitely make that happen. But me as a new author. Uh, optioning my first book for film and television before I'd sold one copy. Uh, I, I couldn't, uh, they, they got, they could do anything they want with it. <laughs> and then luckily yeah. it's Antoine Fuqua and it's Chris Pratt. Now these people that I'm friends with that all are kind of uh, the, the ownership, the, the brain trust of this as far as Hollywood goes. So, um, we're keeping, well, it was the same name as the the book, which was, uh, extremely helpful. Um, right. <laughs> and I uh, have my eye on the clock cause I know you are on book tour and I saw your book tour schedule, which is on your website. People can go and check it out there. Um, and that'll be in the show notes to this, uh, this episode. You are bit, your book tours are extremely busy. Oh my goodness. You are still yeah, out there. Is, the post COVID thing, you know, uh, a lot of people didn't tour obviously during COVID and, um, you know, I'm ambivalent about tours. I don't know about you, but, uh, they could be interested. It's good to meet the fans. That's yeah, the nice part exactly. of it. Um, you know, you're in a bookstore at seven, eight o'clock at night and, you know, when you're giving a talk and you're signing books and it's, it's, you get kind of enthused and even, even after 23 books and you're, you don't want to be jaded. It's kind of, it is fun. It's just the, I think it's the airports that not defeat me. Yes. If it wasn't for the airports, I'd, I'd love to be in all these cities and, and do the tour. And I've always been, it's always been a kind of energizing thing for me. And it's interesting to see what people say about your book and the kind of questions mm-hmm. they, they ask. Um, but you know, for a while I was thinking of not touring, but they asked and I said, okay, I mean, this is my last tour. The last 15, by the way. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I was going to guess that was the case. Uh, I, I love them because I can, uh, when we're shaking hands with those, uh, people, the, the readership, the readers and the fans, uh, it's my chance to say thank you in person right. for, uh, for being allowed to do what I love, which is right to do what I wanted to do my whole life, which is right. And they're the reason that I can do it. So, uh, that's why I really enjoy those tours. Um, but in the couple minutes we have left, um, if you were to looking back, if you were to give your, uh, 1975, 76, 78, 80 year old, uh, or not year old time frame year, uh, self back in those early days, um, what advice would you give yourself looking back? Is there something that you would, uh, wish you had known or that, uh, that you would tell your, uh, your younger self in, let's say 1980, 81. You mean in terms of, uh. Like advice, in terms of writing or advice about writing or, personally, or professionally. Or yeah. What would you, what would you tell yourself? Uh, uh, you know, I think 
I, I was kind of maybe a fast learner. I figured out the business because I kind of live in New York and I knew people in the business. But um, I realized that um, there is a difference in the quality of publishers, the quality of agents. There's a business end of this. I mean, to, to focus it, there's a business end to this. And it's not about the money. It's about, as you know, getting people to read your book. And when they read your book, because they bought it, then, yeah, you, you know, of course, you will make 50% royalties, whatever they're giving these days. But once you get the business end of it down, that if it's done right with advertising promotion, um, you can, and the marketing of it, and the cover, everything from mm-hmm. that, then you, you're going to expand your readership. That And, and you, you, know, you, you, have, you have great books. And a lot of writers we know have good books that sell almost nothing. They're with the wrong publisher, they're with the, they're the wrong agent. There's no advertising budget. And some good stuff gets lost that shouldn't get lost because it just wasn't handled correctly. Right. And um, you know, I was a, um, uh, I, I had a business, a little bit of a business background, so I brought a little bit of that to uh, the writing game. But a lot of writers are very autistic, and they mm-hmm. don't see that uh, it's like everything else is a business. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I that became quite apparent uh, in the lead up to publication of my first book. I realized that and realized right. that uh, I'd have to take advantage of these social media podcasts, um, these things that weren't available if you were writing back in 1980 or 1985. So, um, so I looked at it like the battle space. How do you capitalize on momentum? Uh, how do you look for gaps in the enemy's defenses? Uh, and how do you adapt faster than your enemy or your maybe if there's competition, whatever it might be. So I looked at it like the battle space. Um, and in a couple minutes we have left the maze. So it's going to be out right now when people hear this. And this one was a little different in, and I haven't read it yet, obviously, cause it comes out tomorrow. So I can't wait to read it, but, uh, you're solving an actual real case, a mystery. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't solve it. Uh, I thought maybe I would, you know, when you research a book, you think, you know, it was based on, uh, this is, uh, based on uh, the Gilgo beach murders. Gilgo Beach is a beach here on Long Island where I live, and it's uh, on Fire Island, and it's near the Hamptons. And um, this is a case that's now 11 years old. There were 10 prostitutes found over a period of some months, uh, hidden. They're dead, uh, hidden in the bramble uh, where nobody usually goes because it's you know all thorns and whatever. So somebody figured this is a great dumping ground, but mm. and who it was, you know, the mafia it was a single serial killer. We don't know. But uh, the case became national because there's been, I think, two documentaries made on it and a few books, nonfiction, written about it. So um, it's like everything else, you know, you kind of live with it. I live on Long Island, and every once in a while this case would pop up again. And it's very frustrating to uh, the county homicide people who are not used to handling a case of this magnitude, maybe. And there was no forensic evidence. So at some point I said, uh, this, this may be... The, the basis of a novel, but it's always tricky when you're fictionalizing something that really happened. Uh, but I decided to let, let me give it a try. I, I was just, I mean, I, as much as we all want this case solved because 10 women have been murdered, I didn't want it solved before I finished the book and it came out because that would have kind of messed the whole thing up. And that was always a, with a novel, you know, when you trying to follow, chase headlines or follow real events, you always get that problem because it takes long to write the novel. Then, Publisher will hold it for six months, and the whole world can change. Like the Cold War could be over. <laughs> right. uh, these are not magazines; these are books, and they, they got to kind of be timeless. And 
Uh, but, you know, I found it was interesting. I, speak to, I spoke to a lot of uh, police, uh, especially retired. They're willing to talk more than active duty. And uh, it's a frustrating case. I mean, 10 women were murdered at different times within some months of each other, all put in, all, you know, dumped in the same area. And uh, the police are still clueless 11 years later. And somebody knows what happened. We, even if there's no forensic evidence, somebody knows what happened, not just the one person, not just the, uh, but other people around him. And so there is information out there that uh, I think the case will be solved through a witness more than uh, somebody willing to talk rather than forensic evidence. So, but it was an interesting, I think I did a decent job of, of fictionalizing it in the book. And uh, don't, don't, no, no surprises. No, don't uh, give any spoilers here. But uh, did, uh, do you have a personal theory on, uh, on the, the killer, the killings? Um, and did that make it into the book? Or do you have a separate personal opinion now that some time has passed? You know, I, at first there was some thought that there was corruption at the highest level. This had to do with the Suffolk County police, including the police chief, and that the county DA might have known more than he was saying. It didn't, it was, some things didn't make sense. When the FBI came in on the case, because it became a big case, the local police chief kind of stonewalled the FBI. They didn't really want him in there. Mm. That aroused some suspicion. My, my, my thinking now, I thought about it might have been mafia, but I think it was a single serial killer. A lot of people think it was somebody maybe kind of high profile because there is Fire Island there in the Hamptons. This is what people would love to speculate to some high profile billionaire from the Hamptons, who we all hate anyway because <laughs> he's a billionaire and he's from the Hamptons. <laughs> that, that, excuse me, it was a serial killer. I think it was one person because it seems like everyone was strangled and they were all dumped in the same area. So uh, that's my that's my theory, but uh, we'll find out when I finally catch that guy. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I can't wait to read it. Uh, we're at an hour and I know you have things to do and you're on book tour and it's very busy. So encourage everybody, get the maze, get it this week. And thank you so much for spending this time. I cannot tell you what an honor it has been for me to be able to talk to you. Um, So thank you for the inspiration through all these books. And uh, like I said, I wouldn't be the author I am today without you. So thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. And good luck with the writing. You're you're, you're a great writer and uh, you're a great interviewer, by the way. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll let you get after it. And I'm looking forward to the next ones after the maze. So take care and hopefully I'll see you in person soon. That'd be great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you to Navy Federal, presenting sponsor of the Danger Close podcast. I've been a member since 1996, since my first couple months in the military. Thank you guys for being on the journey with me. Navy Federal Credit Union is helping their members save when they purchase new homes. They have loan options and resources to make sure you get a great deal. Now Navy Federal will contribute $1,000 as a lender credit towards closing costs on your new home. Members also save on their monthly payments since there is no requirement for private mortgage insurance. Plus, Navy Federal offers low rates and fees so you can save even more. Navy Federal mortgage experts can help you choose the best option for you, making the home loan process a smooth experience. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. 
Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Qualifying members with purchase mortgage applications after 9-16-22 may receive up to $1,000 towards actual closing costs applied at closing with no cash back and subject to loan program maximum contribution limits. Terms subject to change. Ask your loan officer for details. Navy Federal. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they are always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. I drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of the terminal list. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash danger close and use code danger close 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, badass workbenches. Awesome right here. This thing is solid badass-workbench.com. Awesome. Thank you. And Mountain Ops, loving this shirt. Thank you so much for sending it. Awesome Mountain Ops just right down the road here in Utah. And look at this. True Precision sent me this SIG. And this thing, True Precision, you might remember I, uh, James Reese used them in my fourth novel in uh, The Devil's Hand. And look at that. Boom. Sig. Thank you. This is a P320 right here. And True Precision, and that is true-precision.com. And I love the 365 that they made for me uh, a couple years back. And this one right here is the 320. So... I mean, this thing is so nice. Look at that. Ready for the suppressor on there. Got a Trijicon red dot sight on there. And look, at, I don't know if you can tell. Can you see that right there? They put cross tomahawks right there. Awesome. So true precision. Thank you. Uh, both the 365 and this P320 are just awesome. You guys crushed it. So thank you so much. All right. Ooh, look at this. And right here, Wood Cabin Candle Company. Look at this. This is a small business, family owned and operated. And I've had a few of their candles over the years that have been 
burning in the house. They sent me a very nice card with stickers right here. Can never have too many pens. And here they are. So right there, woodcabincandlecompany.com. And they have a bunch of different fragrances and all that, but uh, very cool. And look at the packaging. Nice work, guys. Really appreciate it. And uh, check them out for sure. All right, let's see. <laughs> look at this. So this is an 80 series Land Cruiser right here. And on Instagram, Stevie, that's S-T-E-V-I-E, for Leaf, L-E-A-F. He made this for me. See that right there? Oh, yeah. Cross Tomahawks right there. Look at that detail. Says Jack Carr right there. So 80 series. He knows I have an 80 series that I love. And uh, this thing is sweet. So Stevie, thank you for the thoughtful gift. Uh, it is sincerely appreciated. Very cool. And ooh, hoo, 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 look at this Montana Knife Company, MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and look what they did here. Look at this, this knife roll. See that right there? Oh, this is awesome. And they have a new line of kitchen knives out. And I saw somebody open one of these on Instagram, and I was hoping that uh, one would show up at my mail drop and look at that sure enough one did and look at these things these are just awesome so josh smith up there at montana knife company look at that right there we'll be using these on thanksgiving and yeah just love what he's doing up there you've seen me talk about some of his blades before and oh look at that oh yeah nice oh that feels good right there and then this one right here so check them out montana knife company.com and follow them on the instagram as well very cool so thank you guys really appreciate you thinking of me that is awesome and this roll is just epic so cool all right put that over here man 60th anniversary of james bond hitting theaters with dr no back in 1962 and James Bond store, so I couldn't help myself. I got a whole collection of James Bond coffee mugs now. So that's uh, 007store.com. Ooh, look at that. So this one is from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, George Lazenby. Also a very cool uh, documentary on Hulu called Becoming James Bond. Um, very cool. So On Her Majesty's Secret Service, they have them for not all of the movies, but for most all of the movies. Um, oh. Jumping back to that Montana Knife Company, look what else was in there. Little Tacticalories. Oh, yeah. So Tacticalories, very cool. Um, and this one is, yeah, a collaboration with Montana Knife Company. So this is their big horn. Very cool right there. And look at this. This is awesome. Um, so Thomas, uh, I don't want to mispronounce the last name, F-L-U-H-A-R-T-Y. And you can go to... Uh, website, uh, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, F-L-A, F oh, sorry, F-L-U-H-A-R-T-Y.com to check out his artwork. And very nice card here. You can follow him on Instagram, link from that website. And I'm not sure if you can see this or not, but uh, he made this really cool drawing. Look at that. Does that look like me? Pretty close. Very cool. So uh, very distinctive artwork does a lot of cool stuff with uh, cowboys and with superheroes and was honored that he did a, a little portrait of me there and look at that little book 
his artwork right there. So thank you so much for sending me once again, T-H-O-M-A-S-F-L-U-H-A-R-T-Y.com. Very cool. And look at this. Oh, damn. I'm gonna move these knives out of the way. Little horse soldier bourbon right there. And on the podcast, Scotty Neal and uh, Mark Nooch uh, were on the podcast, but some of the first guys into Afghanistan after 9-11. And when they got out of the military, they started this right here, horse soldier bourbon. Can you see that? That is pretty cool. Uh, amazing. Almost makes me not want to drink it. It looks so cool, but, but I will. So horse soldier bourbon, check them out. And they are at horsesoldierbourbon.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks so much. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Nelson DeMille, visit his website, nelsondemille.net, and that is D-E-M-I-L-L-E dot -E net. And remember that the maze is out right now, so be sure and go pick that up. The title drop video for my upcoming novel, Only the Dead, is out right now. You can go to my social channels, at Jack Carr USA, or my YouTube channel to check that out. Officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and you can click on shop for the merch. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right. Right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.